several months ago, we were having an internal discussion about how we were, how we were going to approach Easter. Easter is typically a big time of the year for churches. Lots of people come and attend Easter services, Good Friday services, Palm Sunday services, even if they don't go to church any other day of the year. And so a lot of churches use this as an opportunity to do something different, to kind of showcase their ministry, to try to appeal to the lost, etc. But we kind of, as we were praying through it and as we were discussing how we wanted to approach Easter, it was kind of like, you know, instead of doing something different from what we typically do, let's do exactly what we always do and just trust that the Lord's going to set things up appropriately. Like, let's just really put everything, we're, we're going verse by verse, chapter by chapter through Mark. At the time, we were maybe towards the end of chapter three when we were having these conversations. And it was like, let's just leave it into the Lord's hands. We'll be where we'll be. We'll teach the word as the Lord sees fit, and we'll just kind of put it all into his hands, as opposed to doing something different or unique or special. Well, it just so happens that we're going to be looking at an interesting passage of Scripture, traditionally known as the Mount of Transfiguration. And I would say it's by accident, but we know it's not. It's by providence. The Lord seeing fit, orchestrating things according to, accordingly. We are now at this section of Scripture here on Palm Sunday, and we're going to go ahead and divide it into two sections and also cover it on Easter Sunday. With that being said, today is Palm Sunday. Today is the day that we typically celebrate Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. You know the story, Jesus riding a donkey, making his way in, they're taking palm branches, they're laying their clothes uh, in front of Jesus, they're, they're declaring him, Hosanna, Hosanna the King. The Pharisees come up and they tell Jesus, they rebuke Jesus, saying that the people should be quiet. And you know what Jesus' response was. He said, if I were to tell the people to be quiet, even the rocks would cry out, that that was his day. Now, we know that Palm Sunday, it marks the beginning of what we call the Passion Week. And one could say that Jesus began on this day a direct and deliberate journey to the cross that that's where his sight was set. But it's fascinating to mention that that journey, the journey to the cross, the journey Jesus initiated on Palm Sunday is the exact same journey Jesus has just commissioned each and every one of us to in the last section of scripture we were just looking at. In Mark chapter eight, verse 34, Jesus said, whoever desires to, to come after me, whoever wants to follow me. He laid it out. Here are the requirements. Here's the prerequisite. Let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. The cross. It's very, very important to all of our, of our, of our spiritual lives. Now, this morning, Jesus is going to build off of this by providing two important lessons. First, Jesus is going to warn the disciples that the journey to the cross, the journey he's just commissioned us all to, the journey he would initiate there on Palm Sunday, that journey is not an easy one. As a matter of fact, there are and is a very real enemy bent on keeping us from that very path. Jesus, in the passage we just looked at, had rebuked Peter, and he had said what? Satan behind me. There was a strategy, a satanic strategy trying to keep Jesus from the cross. And there is a strategy 
a satanic strategy, a satanic plan that also tries to keep you from your cross. And Jesus will address this. The second lesson that we're going to find here that we'll look at this morning is that though following Jesus will inevitably bring me to the cross, we'll see by his transfiguration that the cross, it's only a stopping point. It's not our final destination. Verse 35. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him, the Son of Man, also will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Now there are three things that will keep you from the cross. And as a byproduct, keep you from truly following Jesus. First, Jesus mentions it, it's selfism. Selfism will keep you from the cross. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. Selfism. You know, there's a truth, a universal truth about self. First, do you realize that you are in love with yourself. It's a natural byproduct. It's inevitable. It's something we're all born with. We are all born with an innate desire to love ourselves. As a matter of fact, that's what keeps coming to the cross so problematic because dying or the killing of self is not exactly what, what we enjoy. We love ourselves. I'll prove it to you. If we were to take a group photo this morning, you will first immediately upon looking at the photo, Look for who? You. You're not going to be other-centered. You're not going to care about the group as a whole. You will immediately look for yourself. And that's not a bad thing. That's just the way that it is. You will look for you. But then here's the other thing, is you will immediately judge how good or how bad that photo is, not based upon how everyone looks together, but by how you look. So first you'll look for yourself, but then you're going to judge whether the photo's garbage or a good photo, not based upon how like anyone else looks, but how you look. We all might be total goofballs, but you're looking good. You're like, That's a great picture. We should hang that in the church foyer, right? We love ourselves. And so this idea of Whoever desires to save his life will lose it. Losing our lives, losing our right, dying to self. Well, that doesn't excite us. But there's another aspect about self that you should note. Self. Self would pre prefer, above anything else, that has a say in it, self would prefer to serve self. Now, it's true that everyone serve someone. Bob Dylan, 1979. In one of the obscure albums, the album was titled Slow Train Coming, one of his Christian albums, mind you. He wrote a song, and the song is titled Gotta Serve Somebody. Let me read for you the chorus. Dylan says, you're gonna have to serve somebody. Yes, indeed. You're gonna have to serve somebody. Well, it may be the devil, it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve 
somebody. Now, most people don't know the full story because in response to this song, according to a 1998 interview with Yoko Ono, John Lennon was so outraged by what Dylan was saying that he wrote a reply. The title of the song was Serve Yourself. Let me read for you what John Lennon wrote. He said, you say you found Jesus Christ, and this is to Bob Dylan, that he's the only one. You say you found Buddha sitting in the sun. You say you found Muhammad facing to the east. You say you found Krishna dancing in the street. You gotta serve yourself. Nobody's gonna do it for you. You gotta serve yourself. Well, you may believe in devils, and you may believe in laws, but you're going to have to serve yourself. You see, it's, it's a competing philosophy. You're going to serve someone. And Bob Dylan was saying, you're going to either serve God or you're going to serve the devil. And let's just go ahead and classify that as the world. But John Lennon, he was right. For most progressives, we don't see this as I'm going to serve God or I'm going to serve the world. Really, when it's all said and done, I'm going to serve me. You see, even atheists have a God. They just don't realize that that God is themselves, that we all serve someone. And because we serve someone, we would prefer that someone to be me. And because I'm in love with myself, the idea of death isn't very appealing. But Jesus issues this ultimate paradox. If you want to save your life, the key is what? Losing it. It's kind of as though Jesus is saying, if you want to get, be found, get lost. And it runs against the whole notion of progressivism, of self. If you want to save your life, then lose it. The second thing that will keep us from the cross is materialism. So what Jesus says, he says, for what if a man gains the whole world? Gains the whole world, yet he loses his own soul. You know, there's another small detail concerning the cross. You can't take anything with you when you're crucified. It's not as though that they give you your last rites, you can have your last meal, and then you can take whatever you want as you make your way to the cross. Now, you see, the cross, it not only requires selflessness and humility and death, surrender, but it also requires you going empty-handed. It's hard to nail a hand to a cross if it's holding on to something. And materialism, according to what Jesus is saying here, it will keep us from the cross. If we allow the temporary, the temporal, to distract us from the eternal, if we allow things and stuff and money to become our all, to become number one, well, it will keep us from the cross. In Mark chapter four, in the parable of the soil, Jesus even warned that the cares of this world, that what? It can choke out the word and thus will become unfruitful. Now there's a radical implication to what Jesus is saying. For what if a man gains the whole world but loses his own soul? Jesus is saying here that the human soul, that your life has more value 
than everything you could possibly assume in this world. That you are more valuable than anything else. Do you know you're so valuable that it costs Jesus his life to save you? If you were to accumulate all of the wealth, all of the power, all the fame, all the notice, if you were to accumulate everything, it wouldn't be nearly as valuable as you. And why? Because the soul is eternal, but everything else is fleeting. Now, there's a third thing that will keep us from the cross. It's fear of rejection. Look at it again. Jesus says, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man also will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. In the end, let me ask you a question. What matters most to you? What matters, what matters more? Being rejected by this world and what Jesus describes as an adulteress and a sinful generation, being rejected by the world or being rejected by the Son of Man who is coming in glory, the glory of his Father with holy angels. Really, when it's all said and done, what matters more to you? Being rejected by your coworkers, being rejected by your neighbors, being rejected by your old drinking buddies, or being rejected by God. Like it really doesn't get more simplistic than that, friends. What matters more? Because here's the thing, rejection is inevitable. If you're accepted by the world, then you're gonna be rejected. By who? By God. But if you're rejected by the world, then what is Jesus saying? You'll be accepted by the Father. You see, there is always a rejection that will take place. It's unavoidable. It's inevitable. You will be rejected. The question is, is who do you want to be rejected by? The God of the universe or your buddies? There's a progression. Because Jesus will tell us that if he was rejected then shouldn't we expect similar treatment? In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, Jesus says, or we're told by Peter that Jesus was rejected by men, but he was chosen by God. And then John 15, we're told, Jesus says, that if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. So Jesus was rejected, but accepted by God. And if they rejected Jesus, then they'll reject you. They'll persecute you. But then in Matthew 5, verse 11, Jesus says something glorious. He says, but blessed are you. Blessed is the person who is reviled and persecuted. And when people say all kinds of evil against you falsely, for my sake, rejection is inevitable. It really boils down to this question. Whose opinion of you matters most? Everyone someday will stand before a judge, that being God. And at that moment, what or whose opinion matters most? The guy in the jail cell next to you or the judge you'll stand before? It really boils down to that. You're going to stand before God. Whose opinion matters most? 
You see, the events of this world, when it's all said and done, and this is kind of the conclusion of what Jesus is saying, why we should come to the cross and why we should avoid selfism and materialism and why we should accept rejection and not shy away from it. When it's all said and done, the events of this life, of this world, are all about the next. Your life today, it really is setting the stage for the life that will begin after you've breathed your last. Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto what? Unto salvation to everyone who believed. Paul had his destination in view, and he came to the cross. Now, there is another observation I want to make about this section of Scripture because it is a transitional observation. Read again. Jesus says, When the Son of Man comes in the glory of his Father. Now, this word glory, the word glory in the Greek, it means a most glorious condition or an exalted state. Jesus is saying that he's going to come again. How? And the glory or the exalted state or the most glorious condition of his heavenly father, of God, that this will be a future event where Jesus will come in glory. Now, obviously we know that when it's all said and done, Jesus is speaking of a much future, still future event when he comes at the second coming to destroy the armies of the Antichrist, to institute a kingdom here on earth. His glory Read the book of Revelation when Jesus comes, riding a white horse, wielding a sword. It is glorious. And no doubt Jesus is making allusion to that. But as with so many prophecies, sometimes there are dual fulfillments. A fulfillment that happens within the ears of those listening, and then a fulfillment that happens much further down the road once the people listening have passed away. So that there would be a fulfillment and the life of the people who heard the prophecy so that they could trust that there would be a greater fulfillment later on down the road. Now, the idea here of Jesus being presented in glory, it sets the stage. It provides context for what's about to happen next because we're told that Jesus said to them, there's no chapter break. It's a continuation of a thought. It's the same sermon. Jesus says to them, assuredly, I say to you, or with total assurance, with absolute assurance, I say that there are some standing here who will not taste death, will not die, till they see the kingdom of God presented with power. So Jesus has just said, you shouldn't be ashamed because I'm coming in glory. And then he says, and some of you standing here, will not die until you see the kingdom of God presented with power. Now, Jesus adds a continuation of the prophecy. There were people alive who, as Jesus said, would see the kingdom of God presented with power. It's unmistakable what Jesus is saying. The literal interpretation, people present hearing what he's saying would be alive to see something unique and powerful. Now, there are a lot of complicated, convoluted theories about what Jesus is implying, what he's really saying here. And I think often 
It's convoluted when it shouldn't be because we lose the context. What's Jesus talking about? The first key to understanding is you have to define what Jesus meant when he uses the phrase, the kingdom of God. This is what he says people are going to see. So what does he mean? The word kingdom is the Greek word basilia, which means kingship, dominion, or rule. It's not what we often think of if we were to just say in English, a kingdom. If we were to say a kingdom, in our minds we're thinking of a literal, physical kingdom with high walls and a constitution and a king and a governance and a people and an army, we think of a kingdom. But that's not what the word implies. It implies a kingship, a dominion, or a rule. And and then it's the kingdom of God. Theos, the true God. Now, understand, Though Jesus is not saying that people here in the audience would be alive to see a physical, actual kingdom, as some have speculated, which, by the way, would have been a false prophecy, which creates bigger problems for those theologians than I think they realize. Jesus will, though, establish an actual kingdom. So understand that. Jesus is not saying that there would be an actual kingdom that people would see. We know that that didn't didn't happen. That doesn't mean that Jesus won't come and establish an actual kingdom that will take place. However, I challenge you this week, a little homework. You will be hard-pressed to find in the Bible the actual literal kingdom being referred to with the phrase, the kingdom of God. The phrase, the kingdom of God, It's used in the Bible, it's used in Scripture, it's used here by Jesus to describe not the actual kingdom, but the divine nature of the king and the way he would rule. That's what's being defined. Let me give you an example of this. In Matthew 6, verse 33, Jesus would say, common, often quoted verse, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then what? And then all of these things will be added. But think back to what Jesus is saying. Seek first the kingdom of God, and then what? And then his righteousness. Whose righteousness? Okay, his. But who's in context? The kingdom of God. You see, the kingdom of God, this phrase is describing The king, the God king, more than it's describing the kingdom. You see the distinction. Seek first the kingdom of God or the God king and his righteousness. And then everything else gets added to it. So the first key to unpacking what Jesus is saying is understanding what the kingdom of God means. The second key is remembering the flow of narration. Jesus has just said that he would come and the glory the exalted state of the Father. Now he proclaims that there would be some present who would see him in glory, presented how? In power, or with power. That phrase, with power. As we've mentioned before, it's the Greek word dynamis, or dynamite. 
by definition, it is the power provided for God for validation. We often find this word used when we're talking about the miracles of Jesus, that Jesus performed miracles and power, dunamis, that he performed these miracles, these miraculous, powerful works. Why? For validation. Power given from God for validation. Interestingly enough, you'll find the same word in Acts 1 verse 8, when Jesus says to go to Jerusalem, for you will receive what? Power, dunamis, after the Holy Spirit has come upon you. God given power for validation. Jesus is literally saying here, there are some standing who will not taste death till they see the kingdom of God, the God King presented in such a powerful way that it validates who he is. That's what Jesus is saying. But there's a third key. The third key is recognizing maybe a larger picture or purpose behind the prophecy itself. And this is one of the reasons that I love studying the Bible the way that we've been studying it, because I think you would lose it entirely. The problem with the disciples, a continual theme going back to chapter six has been what? The problem with the disciples has been their failure to see Jesus for who he really was. Their problem was spiritual blindness. And what's about to happen? Jesus is saying, there's some here who will see me for who I really am that Jesus would deal with the problem, the fact that they couldn't see the Messiah. Well, we're told that after six days, verse two, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, and he led them up a high mountain apart by themselves, and we're told that he was transfigured before them. His clothes became shining, exceedingly white like snow, such as no launderer on earth could whiten them. Now let's set the stage before we begin to really look at what takes place, the scene of activity, so to speak. After six days, Mark's providing us a transition. Now, there's a question we have to address. Does this detail given by Mark, setting the stage for what's about to happen, now, after six days, does this contradict Luke's account? Have we stumbled upon a mistake and the error in Scripture? In Luke 9, chapter 28, Luke's account of this passage, I'll read it for you. But Luke says, now it came to pass, after the same prophecy, about eight days after saying these things. So wait a second. If Mark sets the stage saying that after six days, but Luke says it was after eight days, who's right? Who's wrong? Have we found a mistake? Well, there are two theories that I think provide an adequate explanation for why we find a difference in description. The first theory is that Luke says after these things. Okay, it came to pass about eight days after these sayings. Could be that each author begins their perspective timeline for the event based upon, yes, the same sermon, but given two different occasions. And we note that there are many times that Jesus 
used a common teaching technique known as repetition. That Jesus would repeat sermons often. That he would make the same point different times. He would be reminding them. We'll find that Jesus predicting his death and his resurrection, this will be a sermon Jesus gives the disciples often. So Mark says that after this prophecy, it was six days, and then Jesus, this event took place, whereas Luke is referring the same sermon, just eight days. It's a plausible theory, I think an adequate explanation. The second theory, though, I kind of gravitate more towards. Mark says, now after six days... After six days, what? Does Mark say that after six days, this event takes place? No, he doesn't. Mark says that after six days, Jesus, Peter, James, and John, they left. They went up on a high mountain apart by themselves. We're not given any indication how long they traveled, how far the hike was. All we're told is that Jesus is teaching them these things. And then there's a a shift, a transition after Six days, or six days after this sermon, they left, they went on this hike. They began their ascent up the mountain on day six, but they went on a two-day hike for two days. They're hiking, they're discussing things, they're talking, they're in the great outdoors. It's a beautiful area. So for two days, they're backpacking, and the event occurs according to Luke, on the eighth day. So they leave day six. The transfiguration happens day eight. Two theories. I do think, by the way, on a side note, that there's maybe a more significant reason that both authors use a different numerical indicator. We know that in Scripture, numbers have meanings. It's called numerology, biblical numerology. Now, don't forget that Mark, Mark is writing to slaves. This huge slave population within the Roman king within the Roman empire. So Mark is writing to slaves, Jew, Greek, Roman, barbarian, doesn't matter, to a slave population and he's presenting Jesus as the ultimate servant. Very relatable. This is why actions speak louder. Why Mark focuses more on the deeds, the activities of Christ than the words. No one cares what a slave has to say. People simply care what a slave does. So he's presenting Jesus as the ultimate servant. Now, in biblical numerology, the number six was the number of man. So it could be. Now, after six days, or after the completion of the work of man, man's work, which is what a slave does, Jesus is presented in glory. And then in contrast, Luke, he's writing to the Greek mind, presenting Jesus as the ultimate man. And in biblical numerology, the number eight represents a new beginning or resurrection. Seven, completion. Eight, resurrection. Just a theory. Now, after six days, Jesus, the disciples, Peter, James, and John, they go on this hike, a nature walk. Why these three? It's a question we haven't addressed at this point in our travels. We're going to take a moment and at least present a few ideas. Jesus leaves behind the disciples. He takes just these three with him. And why? I think it's safe to say, as you study Jesus and the relationship with the disciples, that Peter, James, and John, 
They just had a special relationship with Jesus. I think that's safe to say. Jesus was here to save the world and he was buddies with the disciples, but was it wrong that Jesus simply connected more with individuals? I don't think that that's a wrong thing or even an evil thing or a sinful thing. Let's just be honest. We often connect differently with different people. There's harmony that exists within varying personalities. And I think that, hey, Peter, James, and John, they were good guys to go on a hike with, mainly because maybe Bartholomew and Judas, the zealot, and Nathaniel, just maybe Jesus needed a break from them. Possibly. I think there's another theory that makes a lot of sense too, that if you study Peter, James, and John, that, that Jesus could leave behind the other apostles, but he needed to take Peter, James, and John, mainly because those were the three guys of the lot that if they were left by themselves would get into trouble. And so it was like, well, the rest of you guys can hang out. I got to take Peter, James, and John, because if I don't, they're going to make a mess of things. They're going to get in trouble. I got to keep my eyes on you. So you're coming with me, which is why Jesus is always babysitting Peter, James, and John. It's true. But I think that there's a third reason that Jesus takes moments to prepare Peter, James, and John because they would have a unique role, a unique future ministry. Now, all of the disciples, with the exception of Judas, would have unique special roles. But biblically speaking, the most notable are Peter, James, and John. Peter was the apostle to the Jews, and he would be the apostle God would use to take the gospel to the Gentiles, though God would later use Paul to minister to the Gentiles. James was an important character, probably important to see this event. Why? Well, James would be the first apostle to, to be martyred. Seeing resurrection power would be important because this would be the guy that would pave the way, that would show the rest of them how to die with dignity. John, the brother of James, probably unique here. He's the oldest living apostle. He lives longer than anyone else, probably the youngest, by the way. And specifically, plays a big role in scripture, wrote a gospel, wrote three little letters, and also gives us the book of Revelation. So this particular event, important for these three guys to see in preparation for a future role. Now we're told that Jesus led them up a high mountain apart from themselves. More than likely, because we know that they're in the region of Caesarea Philippi, that the high mountain would be Mount Hermon. Mount Hermon today exists in an area known as the Golan, the Golan Heights. Mount Hermon, about 11,000 miles above sea level. It's a high peak, frequent, uh, frequently has snow. And we're told that upon Mount Hermon, that Jesus was transfigured before them. Now Luke gives us a few more details that are important just to set the scene. We're told that the disciples are sleeping. It's my opinion that this is probably either early in the evening, it's either dusk or it's dawn, one of the two. But the disciples have already called it a day. They've packed it in. A little rest and relaxation, they're sawing some Z's. And Jesus is transfigured, which means that they wake up, a bright light, you know, there's nothing worse than you're sleeping and someone flips the lights on, you know, and you're like, ah, oh, pulling the pillow over. And, and I think that this is probably the, the occasion here. 
They're sleeping. They're in that deep sleep. This bright light shines around them. And they're kind of like rubbing the sleep out of their eyes and they're observing Jesus in this glory and this transfiguration. We have no idea how long A, the scene was unfolding before they awoke or how long the scene was taking place while they're observing. The time here, the timeline, we have no idea concerning. But let's look at the event. And we're not going to get very far here. We're going to divide what takes place here into two sections. We're going to look at what happens to Jesus this morning. And then next Sunday, we're going to discuss what takes place following that. I think sometimes we get into the fact that there's Elijah and Moses and what they're talking about. We get into all of these other things concerning the transfiguration, which are exciting in and of themselves. And then the dialogue that happens afterwards. But we skip right over what's taking place. Jesus is being transfigured. Now this phrase, he was transfigured, it's actually one Greek verb, metamorpho, meaning to change into another form. The best English translation shouldn't actually be transfigured, but instead metamorphosed. Metamorphosis. Now, metamorphosis is the opposite of another Greek phrase we've discussed before the phrase masquerade, which means to put something on the outside that was not presently on the inside. It's to wear a mask to hide one's identity. This is the word that Jesus used to describe the Pharisees, calling them hypocrites, that they were masquerading, that they were pretending to be holy, pretending to be righteous, pretending to be pure, when inside they were nothing but a whitewashed tomb. The outside looked great, but inside was death. It's the opposite. This word metamorphosed or metamorpho, it's it's the flip of it. It's that what was on the outside wasn't really what was on the inside. And in this moment, what existed within Jesus came shining forth so that it could be seen. Note that the light here that's described is not something that shone on Jesus. It didn't shine on Jesus. Rather, it's shown out of Jesus that this light, it wasn't like a spotlight being down from heaven upon Jesus and they're just catching the, the array that's happening around them. No, the light, it's an origin. It's originating from within Jesus. That the mask has been pulled back, that what has always been within Jesus is now shining forth out of his humanity and is being seen for the first time by the disciples. And the transfiguration What has always existed on the inside of Jesus, what has been shielded from view by his humanity, is now being allowed to shine forth. That's what this word, he was transfigured, indicates. Now, why be transfigured? I mean, think about it. I think in some ways the miracle, the greater miracle, is not that in this moment Jesus was transfigured, but that for the 30 plus years before this, Jesus was able to keep in the glory. I mean, really think about it. This is what was inside of him, that he is shielding back, that he is holding back, that he is cloaked with humanity, that he is kept from view of everyone else. It's hard to hide a light, especially a really bright, brilliant, radiating light, and yet Jesus is keeping it all within for 30 plus years. So why now? Why in, why in this occasion? Why with these disciples? 
would Jesus choose this moment to be transfigured? First, Jesus in this moment was allowing the disciples to finally see him for who he really was. In his humanity, and Jesus has talked about this, he would be known as a suffering servant. He's taught them this over and over and over. But Jesus is making it clear that they know, though he's the suffering servant, he is also just below the surface, the mighty God. You see, in the transfiguration, three things happen in context. The glory of God, the glory of the Father is being revealed through Jesus. The kingdom of God, the God King is coming into view. And thirdly, Jesus is being presented with power, validating who he was. Jesus has been talking about being a suffering servant in these lessons over and over and over. But then he pulls back the veil and he just makes sure that the disciples know. He removes the blinders so that they could see finally for who he was. Could it be rewinding several verses that when Jesus touched that blind man's eyes and his sight was restored and we're told that he saw men like trees walking, could it be that in addition to being able to see into the spiritual realm that he also saw the brilliance of Jesus, that he was also able to see Jesus for who he really was? Remember, Jesus tells him to keep everything he saw on the DL, to keep it under wraps. And in this moment, Jesus is teaching the disciples, you're not seeing things correctly. You're blind. This is your problem. So let me allow you to see for the first time who I really am, knowing the impact this would obviously have. The second thing we should note is that Jesus was providing through the transfiguration evidence that he had lived a sinless life. Peter, we're getting the description of what took place here from Peter. Peter giving it to Mark. And Peter says, an eyewitness testimony, that when he sees Jesus, his clothes, the linen, the actual clothing, it became shining. Luke tells us that his face was shining, exceedingly white, like snow. It was so white that no launderer on earth could whiten them. This word shining. In the Greek, this is the only place in the entire Bible that you will find this word used. It's almost as though that Peter, he can't find the word to describe what he's seeing. The, the face of Christ, the clothing of Christ, the appearance of Christ, it became shining. It was glittery. It was Maybe today with our knowledge, we would just say Jesus was radioactive. That the very particles that were within him began shining forth, this aurora, this light. And then Peter's searching. He's like, he was exceedingly white or so bright, so light. It was like snow, which in scripture always refers to like the purest kind of white you could possibly see. 
that maybe there on Mount Hermon there was snow. And so Peter's looking around and he's like, the closest thing that Jesus looks at is the snow around us, this purity, and that there was a brilliance to this light. That he was so, so, so white. And it's, it's interesting, Peter then says that no launderer could ever get anything nearly as white. And in essence, you couldn't clean something up to get it to look like this. This was not something that, that Jesus, his presence was being demonstrated through the transfiguration and the sense that, that he had been cleaned up for them to see. It's that his very person was pure. Like you couldn't make Jesus that white. He was that white. And Jesus is demonstrating that within himself, there was no spot, there was no blemish, that he was white as snow. A few years back, I went on a mission trip to Haiti. And we were all running low on laundry, and there was some of the local Haitians that volunteered to clean our clothing. So we, hey, that sounds great. So we gave them our clothing. We get the clothes back later in the day. I'm telling you, my socks, which are pretty grody by that point, they had never been whiter. I mean, it was brilliant, like brilliant white, these socks. And all of us were kind of just blown away. Like, my goodness, we're in Haiti. They're hand washing this stuff and our clothes are clean and these socks, I mean, we just couldn't get over the socks. These socks are just brilliant white. I mean, bleach isn't doing this. And so we asked, well, everybody was hesitant to give us an answer. The way they had gotten our socks that white is that they had soaked them for about four hours in urine. And urine. Now, the, the, the problem, those were all of our socks. So we had to spend like the rest of our Haiti trip wearing urinated, brilliant white socks. This whiteness, this purity, it's demonstrating Jesus' sinlessness. The third thing that the transfiguration tells us is that Jesus, you can't help but note that he's making it clear or evident that if this is who he really is, then he's in total control. He's in total control. Now, now we're going to set that point aside because that's going to set the stage for our our next study, as we get into the dialogue that's taking place between Elijah and Moses and Jesus. But you have to imagine that as they leave this scene, that Jesus goes back to his normal state, that they never see Jesus the same, and they're always kind of on edge thinking, when's the light going to come out? <laughs> you know, like when is that going to happen? Jesus is demonstrating that he's in total control, but finally, through the transfiguration, Jesus was showing a path to glory. Now, it's not an accident that this event, the transfiguration, followed. Two lessons. Jesus has just told the disciples that he would suffer many things, that he would be rejected by the elders, that he would die, and in three days he would be resurrected or he would rise again. It's also not an accident that Jesus told his disciples that if they wanted to be his followers, they would have to do what? Deny themselves and take up their cross. Though the way of the cross is an important path, 
each and every one of us has to transverse. The transfiguration demonstrated to the disciples that the cross, though was essential, was not and should never be mistaken as our final destination. See, from this mountaintop, Jesus would begin his journey. Jesus leaves Mount Hermon. He comes down, he catches up with the other disciples. And from the far regions of the north, they begin a journey, a descent down the Jordan Valley, up through the Judean wilderness to Jerusalem to die on the cross. Jesus begins this journey at this mountain. He begins it. And this journey, what we recognize is beginning on Palm Sunday, it would include, undeniably, the cross, the suffering the death that came with it. But Jesus' final destination, understand, what Jesus is leaving Mount Hermon with his eyes set on, it would include the cross, and it would include the suffering, and it would include the death, and it would include the tomb, and it would include the resurrection, and the life, and the ascension. But Jesus' destination from Mount Hermon though it would include all of these points along the path, the destination for Jesus was glory, the glory of the Father. That's what he had his eyes set on. Though Jesus made it clear that the only entranceway by which we might begin the journey begins with the cross, the transfiguration. It makes it clear even be before we begin that the destiny, the destination, where we end up is glory, not defeat. It's hope, not despair. It's heaven, not hell. It's resurrection unto life, not the death on the cross. Yes, the cross, it's essential. You can't get to glory without going through the entranceway of the cross. But our our journey doesn't end there. The journey doesn't end at Calvary. The journey, it ends in heaven for all eternity. I've heard it aptly said that cross bearers will one day be glory receivers. And I think that's true. I believe it's true. I hold to that truth seeing that Jesus in his transfigured state, he's doing this right before they begin a journey. So that in those moments, in the valley, they could keep in mind where they were really headed, where Jesus was really headed. Sure, Jesus' triumphal entry on Palm Sunday was followed by a crucifixion that took place on Good Friday. Never forget the finality of that week. It was a day of resurrection. And so, Father, with that word in mind, 